0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 33 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Carmel Byrd. Carmel's writer. Her new memoir, Telltale, is out now through Transit Lounge Press. She joins me from her home in Castlemaine, west of Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Carmel.
1: Hello, Ben. It's so good to be talking to you.
0: How is life in beautiful Castlemaine?
1: Well, today was wonderful. The sun was shining and everybody had their washing out because it could, could get dry, <laughs> <laughs> sunshine. Um, and it's a lovely place. It's not too small and not too big. And there are many people here who are interested in all kinds of arts. There's music, there's writing, there's poetry, pottery, painting, everything starting with P. Um, what else? I don't know. I, I, I play the cello in an orchestra here uh, and many of my friends are involved in all dif- Oh, there are people who make films and we're always being visited by bands and it's it's jumping, Yes.
0: <laughs> how long have you been living there
1: I've been living here for 15 years because I was living in Melbourne for a long time and my daughter and son-in-law and their baby boy moved to Castle Maine so they could live in the country and we thought that I could come and live here too so I did so there yeah, that's all it was as simple as that
0: I have to ask you the Castle Man question oh and is this is one? a yeah, Oh, there how is. you pronounce it. Is exactly, it? yeah. Oh, main well. or Castlemaine?
1: Ah, well, you see, people who grew up here and who uh, are third generation, fourth generation people of the town pronounce it main. okay? So in truth, I tend to think the correct pronunciation is Main. However, I and many other people grew up pronouncing words like castle and dance, and what are some more? I don't know, and Newcastle and Castlemaine in Ireland, which is where this place this place was named for. That place, um, I can't bring myself to say Castlemaine. <laughs> and so I say Castlemaine and if i'm in the company of people who are saying castlemaine i don't say anything it's a little bit like the name of this country i don't know anybody who knows how to pronounce the name of the country we live in so i tend not to to use its name either there are many <laughs> many it, look all all the all the people on television tonight who are using the name of this country would pronounce it differently and yes. I don't know what to do. I wish we could just call it Oz.
0: <laughs> it's a good idea. Yes. <laughs> All right. I want to take you back mm-hmm. to 1945 in Launceston. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. You're
0: at a family picnic at Cataract Gorge. Mm-hmm. Can you set the scene and take us back there?
1: Yes. Well, it was during the the closing days or the final days of the Second World War. So the world was full of fear and darkness and a a lack of hope. But um, Tasmania was a long way away from the action. However, the atmosphere of the second world war colored everything, just as the pandemic colors everything today. And my family, well, it was my mother, my aunt, my sister, my three girl cousins and I went to the gorge for a picnic. And uh, it was at a time of the year when, uh, well, it was, it was autumn, it was autumn, you see. And they told me that at the gorge picnic ground, we would see a peacock. And I thought that the, that the peacock would be a bird with a fanning tail, and it would be this wonderful thing. And so that was what I was imagining. Uh, but of course, it wasn't necessarily going to happen because of the time of year, it wasn't the mating season. And in Telltale, I begin the book more or less at that moment in 1945 and the picnic. And I thread the journey that the family took from the King's Bridge up the side of the hill and for a very long time, it's quite a long walk anyway. Uh, and through the book, I thread that journey with the expectation that the child holds so that the idea of the peacock displaying its tail becomes um, a signifier of hope. And that's what I um, intend readers to feel about this book, which was written at a terrible time in in 2020 during lockdown. Uh, I want readers to sense hope and to feel hope. Well, as you
0: said, so that scene—that's a starting point for your memoir, wow. and mm-hmm. you wrote it at home during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And kind of told through your books on your bookshelf in your home, and your search for one missing title, *The Bridge of San Luis Rey*.
1: A bit more about <laughs> about that. Oh. Well, oh, yes, it, because um, the bridge over the Tamar River be- is at the beginning of the book and was a source of fear to me, Uh, I I became a bit obsessed with the idea of bridges in literature. And I remembered as I was writing uh, that one of my favourite books by Thornton Wilder was The Bridge of San Luis Rey. Uh, And I thought, oh, I can write about that. But I had made a rule for myself that I was permitted to to discuss only books that existed within my own library. I was locked in the house with the books, and if I was going to talk about a book, it had to be here. I couldn't order it in or anything. So uh, I thought, oh, I'll get, I'll get the, the, the Thornton Wilder book down. And I, 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 I remembered that it was an, a, a very insignificant-looking kind of greyish hardback, and I couldn't find it. And so I wasn't going to be able to write about it. And this became, um, as you can imagine, an obsession. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I never and I never found it. And eventually I said to myself, well, this rule of yours is silly. Um, You're going to have to break it. Well, that's what rules are for, of course. So I broke the rule and I called up a wonderful local second-hand bookshop Called book heaven which is they say where books go to after they die and and uh, it was shut but the owner called Anne uh said yes i have a copy of that and then she said i'll bring it round and so it came round like a delivery of a pizza you see and there i was with the bridge of san luis Rey. so that was good so i then went on and talked about it but there is um, a little bit more to the story because after i had broken the rule and written about this book. A few months later, I glanced up up high at at a very high shelf and there was a very pretty looking, bright green book. And I thought, I wonder what that book is. I took it down and of course it was The Bridge of San Luis Rey. So it was there all the time, but it was disguised, was not um, gray, it was green, yeah. So now I've got two.
0: It was funny because when I read that in your book, it was one of the things that I just laughed out loud about because I think that that sense of your rule breaking and yeah. going out to buy the book and then finding yeah. it on a high shelf in your house yeah. the whole time yeah. was just such a, such a great payoff, like reading yes, it I think you do so. It so well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> your book is kind of a, I guess it's a patchwork in a lot of the ways. Um, but, tapestry. Yeah, tapestry. That's tapestry. a good word for it. Um, tell us a bit more about peacocks coming in and out of the work.
1: Coming in and out of the, of the, of the narrative. Yeah. Well, um, because I follow the journey to the picnic ground, uh, I I will have a, a, a little chapter that is concerned with the journey and the peacock will feature the thought of the peacock will feature in that. Uh, then I'll go on to a couple of chapters about other books around the place. Then I'll come back to the journey. I constantly weave the journey in. So the hope of seeing the peacock is woven into the narrative constantly. That's all.
0: One of the things I love about the way this book has come together is the job trans have done with the typesetting because you have these beautiful little like feather motifs at the beginning of each chapter. And even the ends of the chapters end in like a triangular kind of pattern, and it just makes the book so beautiful.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm glad that you see it as beautiful. Um, The designer is a wonderful Melbourne book designer called Sandy Cull, C-U-L-L. She's fantastic. And the design is all her work from beginning to end, from the cover to the motifs and so on that you speak of in in the text, the cover image of the peacock is the work of a local artist who is also wonderful. Her name is Leon Lorena Carrington, and um, Lorena has made um, a collage of a peacock to go on the cover, and that's a Sandy Cull has taken that and worked it on very very beautifully i think i'm very pleased with the design myself
0: Mm. in the book you kind of start your journey Mm. pretty early on in terms of reading and on this podcast we talk about gateway books all the time um Mm. your memoir is kind of a compendium of gateway books we start when you're really young we start when you're about five Yes. Um, at your little elementary school. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that school?
1: About the school? Yes. Well, uh, the school is called Glen Dew, Glen, D-H-U, which is a Scottish word, and before I came to write this book, I had just accepted the name as the name and I had never thought, I wonder what it means. But when I looked it up on the internet, I was allowed to do research on the internet, you see, um, I... I discovered that Glen Dew means dark hollow. And I, this rather pleased me that I had gone to a school called Dark Hollow School because I do have, uh, well, my imagination can be very dark. It also can be very bright and light. However, I, I was very interested that I'd gone to Dark Hollow School. Uh, and at, at Dark Hollow School, the headmaster at the time was a man um called Mr. Miller, I don't know his first name, uh, who had written a grammar book and we learned English grammar night and day. Well, didn't do it at night, but, you know, all throughout primary school, we used this grammar book that the headmaster had written and I still have that book. And that was one of the things that, um, well, the very thing that started me off with writing this book was that I was talking to a friend uh, during lockdown and I mentioned Brewer Rabbit and she wasn't very familiar with Brewer Rabbit and so I went to my bookshelf and took from the bookshelf the exact copy of Brewer Rabbit that I had had when I was six and I said to her here it is and it was the first book that I ever read all the way through it's quite a, a decent hardback um, and uh, and when she left that day uh, for my house I thought that I have a lot of these books, don't I? And so I went round starting to look for the very books that i had had in childhood, and I still had a lot of them. Some of them have disappeared, but a lot of them are here. Mm. But that was what started me writing Telltale because I'd never really expected to write a memoir.
0: Well, I think it's amazing because you go through people like Sebald and Nabokov and Proust mm. and mm. back to people like Maurice Sendak. Um, yes. Was there a specific book that sent you on your writing path?
1: Oh, I don't think so. Um, but I do, I must comment on the fact that when I was about six or seven, I was sent to uh, um, elocution classes, as we called them. I don't think they exist anymore. Um, and and my teacher um gave her students a project which was to learn Alice in Wonderland by heart. Now that hasn't done me any harm. <laughs> and then a bit later on, um I used to take part in speech competitions in Launceston. and for some of those, it was necessary to for the for the contestant, me to to get from somewhere um a what was called a monologue or even a duologue, which one did with one other person. And I used to write them myself and I used to take them, my inspiration and much of my writing from the works of Charles Dickens and lots of other um, literary works as well. So, you know, you didn't didn't lift it straight from Dickens necessarily, but you would, I would... Um, use that, his work as, as inspiration. So two two very early teachers of writing for me were Lewis Carroll and Charles Dickens.
0: Wow. I want to ask you one more question about your Dark Hollow School because one of the anecdotes I really love in this book is the fact that you had two Holocaust refugees coming over to your school.
1: Yeah. The school, although it was, <laughs> although it was Dark Hollow, uh, had some very good qualities and um, there were migrant—I don't like the word migrants anyway—refugees, I suppose. Um, there were there were two girls from Holland who were given into my care at school. Now this must have been high school. This wasn't this wasn't Dark Hollow. This was yeah. This was high school, and uh, they they were. I was their mentor or something. I don't know what I was supposed to be called. But that was very, very, I suppose, formative and interesting for me that I had two foreign girls who did not speak English in my care at school. And one of them was um, called Nettie. She had the most incredibly blonde hair and enormous, fantastic white teeth, and she was fabulously intelligent. And the other one was the opposite <laughs> from all that. Um, and yeah, that was a very interesting. I don't know what became of them, but I had them for about six months. Wow! Mm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Mm. Um, Intel. Intel. Tell. You also tackle the tricky history of Tasmania. Mm. Could you tell us a bit more about the history of Tasmania and your relationship with Tasmania today?
1: Yes, well, my father had a lot of books about the history of Tasmania and they were very interesting and very very patchy because they did uh, acknowledge the existence of the First Peoples but they usually came down on the idea, they ended up with the idea that those people had disappeared and... For some reason, I got the idea that maybe they hadn't disappeared or maybe they were ghosts. Um, and in one of my novels, The Bluebird Cafe, I have the ghost of a girl called Mathina flittering around the gorge as it happens. Um, anyway, uh, I even I had a picture of Mathina on my bedroom wall. So I was from a very early age fascinated by the colonization of Tasmania and the also the um massacres of the first peoples and the possible extinction of those people of course we know they were not they're not extinct but anyway um, and uh i think it was it was because of my far my father's library i guess And, But you see, my sister and brother and cousins didn't dig into those books that I was digging into. They're just spooky old books, you know, that you wouldn't expect a child to be particularly interested in. But I was very interested in them. Um, And I have uh, always had a strong uh, sympathy. Well, that's too weak a word, isn't it? Anyway, a kind of love of the fact that the First Peoples had been there and were still there. And these days, of course, the magnificent thing about this country now is that the Indigenous people are coming to the fore in the most magnificent way. One thing that I do in the book, and it's probably quite subtle, and often I do things too subtly in my writing and people don't quite notice them, but... In this book, the name Tasmania gradually fades away, and by the end of the book, I'm calling it Lutruwita, which is mm-hmm. the First People's name for Tasmania. And every now and again, I do give an indigenous word for a pl- you know various places for the names of rivers and so forth, um, and. Also, in the journey towards the picnic ground, I, the child, notice little creatures and plants and things, some of which I point out are now extinct. They really are extinct.
0: Yeah. I think one of the interesting things is, as well, is you point out the fact that, I guess, for especially for a child, Van Diemen's Land has such kind of evil connotations oh yes and I like the idea of I
1: I got into trouble at high school for for pointing out the (laughs) fact that um both Van Diemen's Land and Tasmania had rather nasty connotations Mm. yes yes (laughs) I did well well, let's have Lutruwita I didn't know Lutruwita as a word in those days of course do
0: you think it's possible they'll ever rename
1: Tasmania well, they are renaming a lot of things. Mm. Yeah, could happen. It could happen. It would be, would be very nice. Actually, you did ask me a few minutes ago about what set me on the path towards writing, mm. and um, there was an incident in high school that that is significant in my becoming a writer. In that, um, the class were asked to write something about our own country particularly Tasmania, um, that we could exchange with students in the United States at another high school. Uh, They would write essays about their country and we would write essays about ours and we would exchange them. So I wrote an essay about the convict and Aboriginal, as we called it, history of Tasmania. And the teacher said that it was quite well written but it could not be sent to the United States because we do not talk about those things. And I accepted that, but I do remember thinking that I was going to write about anything I wanted to write about.
0: In the book, you talk about it being like this kind of gateway of censorship for Mm. you and that being so inspiring.
1: Yes, it was. Yeah, for wow. sure. Mm. So I'm, I'm grateful for all that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about your other books because you're one of Australia's best writers. You've written dozens of books. And I first became aware of you when I was at university and a brilliant lecturer gave me your book, Dear Writer. And it was something that accompanied me for probably 15 years while I was trying to write unsuccessfully (laughs) but it just was a great guide for me and then I went back to read quite a few of your novels as well like I especially have a soft swap for Bluebird Cafe for those new to you um, what's a good place to start with your books
1: that's a funny question I've never actually thought about that Um, one of my favorites actually is 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 the one called writing the story of your life do you know that one
0: no I haven't read that one
1: well you i think you might like that one <laughs> um because it's it's uh um, yeah it, it, it it's a development on on dear writer it's different from dear writer but it, i'm i'm very very fond of that one uh yeah writing the story of your life okay if you if you tell me your postal address i'll send you a copy
0: perfect okay done that? <laughs> okay that sounds great <laughs> i have to wait ask you as well this memoir is you know it's just been released you're doing mm. the launch very soon with Andy Griffith which is extremely exciting but okay. before we talk about that are you working on anything at the moment
1: i'm working on a collection of short fiction and many of the stories in this collection are concerned with extinct animals wow uh yes
0: yeah okay extinct animals fascinate me have you got a favorite extinct animal
1: oh uh, well I don't know. I mean, I I could say the thylacine. Mm. uh, That's big. Um, Is the thylacine
0: extinct, though? That's the question.
1: Well, yes, it is the question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, well, let's say I'm very interested in the possible extinction of species. Mm. Um, And I think my favourite story of of mine uh, along those lines is called Love Letter to Lola, and it's about the extinction of, um, a bird, a blue parrot called Spix McCaw, S P I X, Spix, S P I X S-P-I-X apostrophe, Spix's McCaw. Um, it's a, a heartbreaking story. The narrator is the last Spix McCaw in the wild, and he's writing a love letter to his wife who was the second last Spix McCaw in the wild. Her wow. name was, I, I gave her the name Lola. I, I don't know what he called her, but anyway.
0: Okay. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Very cool. Um, it, it's
1: been, they've, they've been published, these stories. In, in, uh, I think that was published in probably Australian short stories.
0: Obviously, you've had a quite a long career in writing, mm. but I just want to ask you briefly, Who are some of the other writers, contemporaries you've crossed paths with along the way?
1: Oh, so many because um, writers love to get together and um, and writers' festivals are marvellous places for writers because you meet the writers you admire from not only all over this country but all over the world. And I have friends in the writing community in this country. Marion Halligan is a very close friend. Frank Morehouse was a friend. He just died. Mm. Uh, Gerald Monain is a friend. Um, uh, oh, I mean, Gabriel Lord. I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll miss people out if I start. Andy Griffiths, of course, is he's a very good friend mm. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I, love, I love talking writing with writers, yeah.
0: Who are some of the writers from overseas who you've become friends with?
1: I, I, a lovely thing happened once. Um, this was at a writers' festival in Sydney. I met Evelyn Waugh's son, uh, whose name was Oberon Waugh, and I had admired him forever as the editor of the Literary Review, uh, and I loved his first novel. He didn't write very many novels, um, but his first novel was called The Fox Club Saga, and I, I just loved it, and I still love it. Um, and I met him at the Sydney Writers' Festival at, a, you know, a, a, an event, a party, at a party on the, on the wharf. Uh, And I don't know why he asked me this question, but he he came up to me and he said, excuse me, can you tell me where I can go that I can smoke? And so I took him outside and he smoked and we talked about literature and uh, he reached into his briefcase and said, oh, I'd like to give you this. And he gave me a proof copy of the Foxglove saga, which is one of the most precious things that I've got. Yeah.
0: What a great story. That okay. was
1: nice. That was very nice. Yeah.
0: Another book I'll have to read.
1: Oh, the Foxglove saga is so fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you, what books are you currently reading? What have you recently enjoyed and what are you looking forward to?
1: Oh, well, I'm currently reading a book which I'm going to launch in Hobart next month, uh, and it's by Daniel Wood, who is a marvellous uh, Tasmanian writer, well, she she's called Danielle Wood when she writes literary fiction, which is very wonderful, uh, but when she writes popular fiction, which is what I'm going to launch, she is called Mini Dark, and this Mini Dark book is called With Love from Wish and Co. It's a big, fat novel, and Wish and Co. is a shop where they um, will... Uh, people people go to this shop. Oh, like, how can I explain it? Um, I'll read it from the back, back <laughs> cover of the book. Excuse me. Um, Marnie Fairchild is the brains and talent behind Wish & Co. It's a boutique store that offers a bespoke gift-buying service to wealthy clients with complicated lives, right? So the, the boss wants to send a birthday present to his wife but he doesn't go in he doesn't choose anything he just rings wish and co and says you organize it and the um the plot of this novel hinges on the fact that a man orders from wish and co a gift for his wife and a gift for his lover and the gifts get mixed up uh, so that's the problem okay yeah. very cool <laughs> it's very nice very <laughs> good fun
0: yeah okay All right. What else have you got on the run? What else are you reading?
1: Well, I can't read two things at once, you know. That's what (laughs) I'm reading, yes. Okay.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero and come back with Carmel's Top 10. Mm -hmm. Do you love gourmet food, but if truffles become a bit passe, why not try the exclusive and exotic taste of lettuce? That's right, it's delicious. Available now for only 15 99 each at Coles. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Carmel's Top 10.
1: You asked me if I had 10, um, ten books, right, that I, that, that I like. Well, yeah. these 10 books would vary, Ben, from day to day. <laughs> so today, I've got today's list. Are you ready? Yeah, I've I'm got, ready. Yep. Yeah, I've got The Ant's Story by Patrick White, Carpentaria by Alexis Wright, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. Have you read that?
0: Yes, it's brilliant, isn't
1: it? Yeah, good. Okay, I'm glad you've read that. Um, the Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm, Lolita by Nabokov, And then there's a book called Colour by Victoria Finlay, which I just love. It's about colour. Um, Coonidoo by Catherine Susanna Pritchard, The Man in the Red Coat by Julian Barnes, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, and something called Nobody's Perfect, which is um, a collection of movie reviews by Anthony Lane from The New Yorker. I love The New Yorker.
0: Before we wrap this up, do you want to tell us where we can find you? and where we can order them marvellous telltale and where we can come and go and see you at your launch with oh, Andy right. Griffith.
1: There's, there's a launch on the 16th of July in Bendigo. It's at a fabulous new bookshop, which is called Bookish. It's in Hargraves Street, Bendigo, almost opposite JB Hi-Fi. That's <laughs> at three o'clock on the 16th of July and Andy Griffiths will be launching the book. I'm I've My website is carmelbird.com. And that's got a contact email in it.
0: Brilliant. Telltale is available everywhere, isn't
1: it? It is, yes.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great. Oh, it's
1: been so nice talking to you. Um, I'm always a bit hesitant and, and nervous and thinking, what's it going to be like? Well, it was really, really nice.
0: Thanks once again to Carmel Bird. Check out the show notes for all the details and do pick up Telltale, it's fantastic. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.